Aloha. Mahalo for joining us. It is Monday, February 26th. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii Talks on the Conversation. It is the largest construction project the U.S. Navy has ever undertaken. Its price tag is estimated at $3.5 billion, and it was quietly launched six months ago. HPR was there at the Pearl Harbor Shipyard this weekend for the anchoring ceremony. Bamboo Ridge Press marks its 45th year in business, elevating stories of Hawaii Ne. We'll hear why the publishing company is important to local writers. What makes a luau a Hawaiian luau? We learn about a new venture launched by an Oahu halau. In 2024 celebrates the year of the forest birds and Manu are highlighted in a new immersive theater performance that creates an inclusive space for an audience that often gets overlooked. You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. They call it an anchoring ceremony. The Navy symbolically broke ground Saturday, anchoring the first pylon into the pier where work to modernize four dry docks at Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam is getting underway. The shipyard modernization project will be the largest construction project in U.S. history, not just here in Hawaii. The project is necessary to service the larger Virginia-class vessels, our nuclear submarines and ships that require a wider and deeper, uh, wider dock. Over the years, the Navy's ships have gone from sail to steam to nuclear power, and Hawaii's facility is just part of an overhaul of the country's four public shipyards. Here's Admiral Sam Paparo, commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. This shipyard will be decisive in the 21st century. We pray not in achieving victory in combat, but in deterring conflict so that the Pacific lives up to its name, the ocean of peace. Pearl Harbor Naval Shipyard and its people have not rested on their laurels since then. I was chatting with uh, Senator Schatz and Rep Case and told them that I have some guilty knowledge of shipyard performance across the United States Navy. And in fact, the Pearl Harbor Naval Shipyard is the top performing shipyard in the United States of America. And these are not, these are not just idle qualitative statements, but it's on time performance, on budget performance, on uh, the workmanship and the quality and the rates of rework on the jobs that are done here. This is the jewel in the crown of all of the, uh, of all of the Navy's shipyards right here in our island home in Pacific. And its people serve in the spirit of their World War II forebears. Their innovation, attention to detail, grit, and uh, they are unmatched, and they will continue to keep the fleet fit to fight. The country's investment in Dry Dock 5 will give this talented team the tools they need to maintain and repair submarines and ships for the next 100 years, and will keep the peace that we pray for every night. This project is just one part of our nation's commitment to improving our shipyards through the $21 billion Shipyard Infrastructure Optimization Plan. It will improve the condition, capacity, and configuration of our four public shipyards, not just here, but in Washington State, Virginia, and New Hampshire. The Navy and the nation are investing in the future and bringing these centuries-old facilities into the modern era. But lest we forget which is the most important, it's the one here in the hub of the Pacific in the Pacific century. And Hawaii U.S. Senator Maisie Hirono uh, uh, was there uh, this weekend. She sits on the Senate Armed Services Committee on military readiness. She acknowledged its importance to national security, but also cautioned the need to be completed on time and on budget. She reminded the Navy of a recent shipyard project on the East Coast that went wildly out of control with cost overruns. Pearl Harbor Naval Shipyard is a key piece of our military infrastructure in the Pacific 
and we all know they are the largest employer, industrial employer in Hawaii. There will be over 2,000 workers working on this dry dock. While Dry Dock 5 is an important component of PSYOP here at Pearl Harbor, it is only one component, a very major component, of the work needed to fully modernize this shipyard. And I have been vocal, as many of you know, about the timely construction of the waterfront production facility and other important components that are part of the development plan. I also want to point out that these projects can result in huge cost overruns as we experienced at Portsmouth Naval Shipyard in New Hampshire, where a dry dock project resulted in a cost overrun from the initial estimate of $528 million to $2.2 billion. The Navy was able to apply the lessons learned from Portsmouth to Pearl Harbor by increasing contractor competition improving coordination and streamlining construction. I know all of you who are responsible for this dry dock will keep an eagle eye on this project to make sure that it is completed on time and on budget. I'm looking at you all. <laughs> I know you get it done. The improvements made at this shipyard will have a lasting impact on our workforce and our community for decades to come. Admiral Popar said 100 years. I appreciate all the work that you all have put into this project and for this day to come. And we're really proud to be here to join all of you. And of course, I look forward to joining all of you when we celebrate the opening of Dry Dot 5. Mahalo nui loa. You know, the word shipyard to many Oahu residents automatically makes them think of traffic. There are already close to 7,000 shipyard workers at Pearl Harbor. So when you say we are possibly adding 2,500 more, you may wonder, is the commute going to get that much worse with big trucks and big rigs on the highway? We talked to Captain Stephen Patty. He's with the Navy office that was created to oversee this massive construction project. It is a very, very big job. Tons of construction material. So how do you move all that around from point A to point B? Well, part of the solution is to create a staging area at the Waipio Peninsula and ferry the steel and supplies on the water. After we awarded the contract to, to uh, our contract partner, DHO, that's uh, Dragados Hawaiian Dredging in Orion, and they looked at how do we minimize the gate traffic, right? So there's a few, few concerns. There was the loading at the gate. There's also, of course, the traffic loading on the roads. And so what they've done is they've partnered with folks at Aloha Stadium to use space, existing space over there, um, and they're operating a park and ride shuttle. And so by doing that, even at peak, we estimate that's only going to bring about, I'd say about eight busloads uh, per shift, which is a very negligible amount of traffic on the roads. So it's keeping traffic away from the joint base. Um, it's using existing arterials um, in a way that doesn't increase loading significantly at all. Uh, puts them there. And the other great thing it does with that, lo that particular location um, for any of the workers coming from the EVA side, they have the opportunity to take the skyline uh, to, the, to the stadium stop um, and their last mile to the project site is accounted for because our contractor is operating a, a park and ride. Okay, and then when the next leg of uh, Skyline gets built, then that Makalapa gate then will be key of you know, getting people right in. Uh, over there closer to the base. Sure, it, it, that, that will help, um, but, but I think that, that the, the big key is being able to bring them all the way here to the job site. Um, and so and that, that can happen now. We, we certainly don't need to wait for Makalapa Station to be ready for that. But, but certainly the more the skyline gets built out, uh, the more it helps us all. Uh, also partnering very closely with the joint base here, um, who's working with the, with the bus um, and the transit authority in order to, uh, um, to, to be able to get the bus routes in here. And they've actually modified some of their route and added some stops here at the shipyard. Um, so workers can also take advantage of that as well. And talk about uh, the supplies, because I understand that you're making arrangements out at YPO so that the stuff gets barged over there and then brought in here? Uh, exactly. So the significant amount of material for this mega project, um, it, it was not going to be feasible. We don't have the laydown space and the, and the haul routes right here at the project site and through the shipyard. It's an active shipyard and we can't in, uh, impact uh, operations unduly. We want to protect the existing infrastructure. So 
since project inception, we looked at being able to include other areas than the direct project site here. And so part of the, the project is setting up a logistics site at YPO Peninsula. And so that's been set up, it's underway. We're continuing to build that out. It includes a logistics pier. Um, we're handling our dredge material there. Um, that logistics pier will also be able to be a, a reception and onloading area for all the steel and all the other uh, many of the other materials that are flowing to the site. And that way we can just flow it right across the harbor, less than a mile away, rather than traversing all through the roads and having to, to go through haul routes in the middle of the night. So it, it, it helps from a, a, an efficiency standpoint, a safety standpoint, a community partnership standpoint. The, the steel alone, we're talking about 63,000 tons uh, to bring in all the piles and rebar, um, et cetera, in order to go into the project. So by having that reception area, we have ample laydown space and we can, in a very controlled way, bring that material across to the project site when it's ready for installation. And then uh, uh, talk about the supplies of, of materials, you know, like uh, concrete, asphalt. Uh, will that have any impact on the uh, private construction projects? You know, because I don't know where you're getting your materials. Is it Hawaiian cement? Concrete. That, that's right. So, so the the the, the Hawaiian cement is, is providing uh, almost all the concrete here. The the, the steel uh, and all the other materials we're, we're maximizing to to the uh, you know po extent possible what material we can source here. Some of the steel is coming from the mainland, uh, like the the piles uh, that were highlighted here in the ceremony today. Um, these 85-inch piles they're being fabricated in Texas, flowing through the Panama Canal, and then being received directly at YPO. But the resourcing strategy for this project is is uh, always been local first. Not not only is is that the right answer for our local partnership, it is the most efficient, cost uh, cost effective uh, solution to this project. But are you going to get to a critical path point where you might need, let's say, everything that's available for the concrete? sections of work here? So our contractor is working very, very closely with all the local suppliers and as well as uh, labor unions for, for the uh, uh, the craft labor that has to come here. It's a very dynamic situation where they have to constantly work with them on availability, as you mentioned, have a competition for resources with the other requirements here in Hawaii. Um, and so I, I, I think that uh, uh, the opportunity here in Hawaii for, for vendors, for suppliers, for craft labor, it's tremendous. Um, as, it's, as it's available, uh, definitely our contractor is going to take advantage of that. That was Captain Stephen Patty talking about the logistics involved with the massive Pearl Harbor shipyard modernization project that is getting underway. The Navy has been talking with neighborhood boards about what it's doing to minimize the impact on the surrounding communities. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors installing Daikin products, that's D-A-I-K-I-N, at CostcoHawaii.com. Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, host of The Body Show. Each week we do our best to provide you with up-to-date medical information from our local experts that might help you or someone you love know more about the world of medicine. Join us today for our latest episode at 6.30 right here on The Body Show. For 45 years, Bamboo Ridge Press has been making what some writers call literary mischief. It marks its publishing anniversary this year with a fundraising dinner at the Japanese Cultural Center that's just around the corner. It also recently published a collection of stories to honor the contributions of so many authors over the decades. On February 29th, it hosts a reading on Kauai, one of the many events across the state that it puts on. We sat down with Misty Sanico and Scott Kikawa about the role that Bamboo Ridge plays in our community of writers. Bamboo Ridge began in 1978. It was founded by Eric Chalk and Daryl Lum, and they were looking for a space for Hawaii writers so that they wouldn't be pigeonholed or defined, and they wanted to amplify our local voices. And so they founded this press as a writer's quarterly, and it came out four times a year. 
It's so interesting to hear their history. And actually, you can go to our website and hear them talk about the origins of Bamboo Ridge in their own words with our oral history project. But it's so wonderful to hear them tell the story in their own voices about why they wanted to start this press and how they put the first issue together letter by letter and they saddle stitched it and then they distributed it out of Eric Chalk's van. <laughs> and from there, it, it just grew and grew. And they have supported emerging and established authors, over a thousand individual writers over 45 years in over a hundred books. And that's a lot of stories if you think about it. And, and you have uh, organized events. You have a number of readings uh, coming up, including one on Kauai. Right. Um, so this is our 45th anniversary, and we have a special issue out to celebrate that. So there's a ton of writers in this book, one of our biggest books. And we've organized a bunch of readings around that, as well as a banquet fundraiser. And so I think on Leap Day, February 29th, there is a reading at uh, Kauai Community College. It's going to be in the evening, 5 to 6.30. So it's really great to be able to connect with our neighbor island writers. And we also have a virtual reading planned later on in April. That's for a lot of our writers who are living away from Hawaii in the diaspora. So, you know, the ones that are in Seattle and Portland and uh, Pennsylvania, all over. Right, you have to connect everybody. Yeah. yeah. And Scott, jump in here. Talk about what Bamboo Ridge has meant to you in your writing experience. Well, I think I'm something of an anomaly. Like Misty said, I'm one of over a thousand. But lucky enough that Bamboo Ridge, who has this reputation for doing Hawaii's best literary fiction and poetry, has picked up my detective books. Here we are three books later. They're numbered issues of Bamboo Ridge. And I'm lucky enough that they have said we're going to go ahead and do a fourth. Uh, Bamboo Ridge is important not just to writers who have shorter literary expressions. Uh, it, it's important to people who do a longer form like myself. I don't think that my books would have found a home in a larger publisher on the mainland. I was told that it's because the Hawaii I portray is not one that people outside of Hawaii are interested in reading. This is Bamboo Ridge's wheelhouse. Uh, they portray Hawaii, I think, as it is, as we perceive it to be, and I think that's really important um, that people here have an opportunity to express what they feel our home is like. My books are set in the 1950s and the post-war years prior to statehood, and it's not quite a hidden history, but it's what I call a neglected history. I don't think that it's made an appearance very much in popular culture. The world outside of this place only knows World War II as the big event that happened here between the overthrow of the monarchy and today. And it was a perspective, I think, that presses on the mainland couldn't find a vision for selling. One of the important things about Bamboo Ridge, I think, is that it's not tied down by a profit motive, which means uh, we don't do cookbooks and we don't do coffee table books or books for tourists, we do literature. And I think that's really important. I think that the lack of a profit motive and housing something like that uh, in a nonprofit is extremely important. I think that those thousand plus voices may never have been heard uh, but for that. Yeah, and the whole idea is to elevate these voices that either are dismissed or discounted. Yes, and many writers are emerging. That They've published their first piece, even myself. My first piece was published in, in Bamboo Ridge and sort of kicked everything off from me. And so a lot of people have their first poem or their first story published in Bamboo Ridge and go from there. And we embrace that. We love to hear those stories. And as much as Bamboo Ridge is a literature of place, these stories are so universal, right? At, at its core, it's family, it's, it's our experiences. And, you know, like Lee Cataluna, she's got a ton of stories in here, but she's very popular in, in other places because her stories really get down to that root of our relationships with each other. So lots more like that in, in this. Well, you know, I just uh, remember seeing her play, right? People You Meet at Long's. And I know she's got, I think, another one about Super Auntie. You know, and so it's just neat to be able to bring in just 
kind of the common experience, you know, that we have if mm-hmm. you've spent any time here growing up here or connected to the culture. But Scott, do you remember when you got your first thing published? I mean, what that felt like as a writer? Oh, yes. It was a, it was a shock and it was a thrill. <laughs> <laughs> I, I came to Bamboo Ridge by accident. I wrote a detective novel and I was referred in a very roundabout way to a man named Corey Johnson in Northern California. Corey was originally from the Big Island. He was working on his doctorate at Stanford at the time. I was referred to Corey by his friend, Steph Cha, who's an amazing detective fiction writer based in Los Angeles. She thought that Corey could help me in my querying process. Corey said out of the blue, have you ever thought about submitting to Bamboo Ridge? And I think I laughed out loud when he said that because Bamboo Ridge had been an institution that I'd respected for so long. And I thought there is no way an institution like Bamboo Ridge is known for its literary fiction and poetry is ever going to do a pulp detective story. (laughs) Corey said, well, he felt that Eric and Daryl had a mission when they first established the press, but to a large extent, They have accomplished that mission, and maybe they're looking for something different. So why not submit a couple of chapters in Media Res and see what happens uh, for their anthology? I did so. I didn't expect anything, and I was floored when I received a response that they had picked it up for their anthology. I think that was issue 108. From there, it just uh, we're we're today, and I'm I'm three novels in. Wow. You know, what I find is really exciting is, you know, when you see – let's say, like Lee Cataluna's, you know, printed word become then a performance on stage. And then a former colleague of mine, Cedric Amanaka, you know, he's, he did, you know, Hawaii Shorts and wrote a number of books. And to see some of his stories then transform into a film, and it, you know, it was just fun to see that spark uh, just blossom into something else, you know. And I don't know if, if that's, you know, something in the future for your novels. I would hope so. Um, And I think that at this point, and I I had resisted calling it a series, but the folks in editorial at Bamboo Ridge have started calling it a series, so I've just surrendered (laughs) and, and, and given it that title. But I think this is the appropriate home for it. There was talk of sending it to a larger publisher on the mainland, but I don't know if that's the appropriate place for it. We made a lot of decisions uh, with my novels, including not italicizing words in languages other than English here that are not to us foreign languages. We don't italicize Hawaiian words. We don't italicize Japanese words or Cantonese Mm -hmm. words or Ilocano words because to us they're not foreign languages. They're not other words. Yeah, (laughs) but we we have italicized French and Latin Mm. uh, because they are foreign languages here. But I think little touches like that are things that would be a battleground with a mainland publisher. Uh, So I'm really happy to have my work here. But I think what this does is it, it kind of points out the urgent need uh, for funding because uh, Bamboo Ridge is, at the end of the day, a nonprofit. Uh, Misty knows that Daryl has famously talked about this 45th anniversary issue, which we are selling for $30, (laughs) which is kind of above the list price of a usual Bamboo Ridge issue. But Daryl pointed out that it costs $37 to print per copy. So we're taking a loss of $7. It may not seem like good business to most, but that's the truth of being a nonprofit. Well, you know, you should sell this for 45. I'm sorry. It's the 45th anniversary. <laughs> that would have been nice. <laughs> and historically, it's, it's always been thus, right? It, it cost them more to create these books than, than they were asking for people to pay for them. So it, I guess it's very fitting that for the 45th, we're still, we're still cutting a loss. <laughs> and so you've got a big fundraising dinner coming up. Yes, March 2nd which is a Saturday. It's going to be at 5 p.m. at the Japanese Cultural Center of Hawaii. And uh, folks can go to our website, which is bambooridge.org, to find out more information, purchase a seat to come hang out with us. Scott will be an MC and host alongside with Noe Tanigawa. And the program is very interesting. We have a silent auction. All the monies go to benefit Bamboo Ridge Press. And just some of the things that donations, book sales, subscriptions, our grants, these are these are how Bamboo Ridge functions and they go to a lot of things. A lot of it is future publications, more books, right? We always want more books and community programming. So 
events, readings, workshops. Most of them are free, especially for students. It also goes to help us preserve our out-of-print books. So we are digitizing them and archiving them with Kapiolani Community College in their repository. And people can go and read and download those books for free. So that's important, and as well as our oral history. So all of that is what the monies from this fundraiser will go to. That was Misty Sanico and Scott Kikawa, writers whose works are featured in the 45th anniversary edition of Bamboo Ridge. Look for links on the conversation page of our website later today. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omoloka'i, olana'i, omaui, okaho'olabe, ohava'i. We have a story about a new Honolulu Theater for Youth production created for children with disabilities coming up later in the program. So today we're testing your knowledge of HTY. Uh, the, the productions have long been an integral part of Hawaii's art and culture scene. In the 1850s, Queen Emma sang in the chorus of a Verde opera while her husband, King Kamehameha IV, served as stage manager. In 1922, the historic Hawaii Theater opened and featured vaudeville entertainment and silent films in its early days. As for the Honolulu Theater for Youth, it got its start in 1955 with the purpose of making a difference in the lives of young people, families, and educators. Over the last 60-plus years, they featured hundreds of productions based on everything from children's classics to original pieces. For today's Backyard Quiz, what was the first play produced by HTY back in 1955? And here's a hint. It was based on a classic fairy tale. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing access to affordable housing to those with intellectual and developmental disabilities, including ARC of Maui County. NareedHawaii.com. You are invited to HPR Generation Listens Trivia Night every first Monday of the month at Village Bottle Shop and Tasting Room in Kaka'ako. Test your wits, enjoy some friendly competition, and connect with fellow HPR fans. Gather your team of up to six public radio nerds and sign up to play at hawaiipublicradio.org slash genlisten. Support for HPR comes from the Kim Coco Fund for Justice of the Iwamoto Family Foundation, partnering with Life of the Land to help protect the island's environment and Community Alliance on Prisons, focusing on Hawaii's quality of justice. There is a move underfoot to offer a more authentic Hawaiian luau experience here on Oahu. HPR reporter Castia Ordonio is here to explain more about what's underway. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes. So, so tell us about this. So for the past few decades, the Native Hawaiian culture has taken a backseat to most performances catered to tourists. Um, now, some Native Hawaiian-led organizations and even cultural practitioners are putting the spotlight back on the host culture of Hawaii. And I recently attended the Queen's Luau in the Punchbowl neighborhood. So it's not your typical luau that you see in Waikiki. It's in the backyard of Kumuhula, Carl Vito Baker's home. 
Uh, he wanted to design an all-Hawaiian show because he's been seeing less and less Native Hawaiian culture in contemporary luau. The difference between myself and, and Lanakila, the other kumu, you know, we're also part of the band, is when there's all kinds of beautiful voices that sing at the luaus and, you know, they're given a song and they sing it. But they, they don't really have any kind of link to that song or reason why they're singing that song. It's just like, okay, this is put in, this, in the show and we're going to do this song. And they sound good, but... When Lanakila and I sing, the song might be to bring our queen alive. And it may be songs written for her, by her. And when people hear those songs, they have an appreciation of why we love our queen, Liliokalani. And when we hit the ipu, the gourd, it's not just to make sounds because, oh, it's exciting to hear the sounds. When we hit that ipu, it's because we're going to tell a story. And in this case, we tell a story of our Tutu Pele, who is alive and well in Kilauea at Hale Ma'umau. We tell our stories with, through the dance and through the chants. There's a big difference. Yeah, interesting. And so this show is set up with hula dancers chanting and singing about Queen Lili Uokalani, Pele, the love for the land, giving aloha and much more. And part of the show sounds like this. Yeah, and for folks who don't know, I mean, this halal is respected. It's won, you know, uh, the competitions, the Murray Monarch competitions. So, uh, uh, yeah, they they know their stuff. They know their hula. They do. And also, going to the Queen's Luau, it's very different from Luau in Waikiki, for example. So you have the hula dancers. I talked to two who go to Midpack, and they're part of a halal under uh, Michael Lanakila. And so when they when I saw them they were making they were making hakule and lei, and when I was there there was a mixture of visitors and even locals um, some locals who are coming from the Windward side to North Shore so that far to even come here, uh, or come to the Queen's Luau and see what it's all about. But when the the boys um, who were making hakule there were three sisters from North Carolina who came to visit. Some is their first time, some it isn't, but this is the, uh, one of their first time being at uh, an all-Hawaiian-led luau, and they were actually engaging with uh, the hula dancers of, what are you making? And it wasn't kind of like, oh, what is that just to ask? It's asking like more in-depth as to what is this for? How do you prep the lay? Um, what is the cultural significance behind it? And just seeing that interaction was very different than when you see in contemporary luau, which is like a Polynesian mix with like Tahitian dancing, Maori poise spinning, or the fire knife dancing. Uh, so um, uh, Kumu Hula Carl Vito Baker said that's what inspired to do the Queen's Luau just because he's not seeing much of his native Hawaiian culture. And so when Carl Vito Baker bought his property in Punchbowl in 2001, it was kind of in shambles and um, he constructed it fully in 2004. So uh, he has his halau there where he'll teach hula and then he has the pa hula. So in the backyard, you kind of see this platform that's for, there's like three platforms actually, kind of elevates a little bit. So you have the first platform for the hula dancer while Carl Vito Baker and Lana Kila will be on the top hitting the gourd and, and singing and whatnot. And the Queen's Luau pays tribute to the last um, reigning monarch, Queen Lili Uakalani. And Baker's home is actually named Kiaunanalani, which is named after his great-grandmother, who was a lady-in-waiting for the queen. And um, Baker stressed that he really wanted this all-Hawaiian luau because he doesn't see much of his culture in Waikiki anymore. Um, like I said earlier, it's more about um, the contemporary luau with the Polynesian mix. Um, so more all-Hawaiian uh, luau are being pushed to the forefront as the Queen's Luau launched this year. So did the Kilohana Hula Show. Um, and so I've also talked to uh, a dancer, Mehealani uh, Kamau. She's been dancing for more than 30 years. And she's also been seeing less native Hawaiian culture in uh, the contemporary luau. 
in my hello, I did learn all the Polynesian numbers. I was fortunate in my hello to learn all of it. Although hula was our foundation and our main type of dancing. So I do honor Polynesia in a general sense, but seeing that I lived off island for a really long time and people started to relate to Hawaii as coconut bras, drums, the fire knife dance, Tahitian dancing people thought was Hawaiian. I was noticing that shift and that we weren't getting the representation that is truly Hawaiian. We weren't getting that authentic representation out there in the world. So not sad, but more of a challenge to reclaim our space. Interesting, reclaiming the space. And that's kind of like the theme that's I've been hearing throughout the stories, reclaiming space in the tourism industry. And what's interesting about Mahalani's story is that she actually recently moved back from Florida six months ago. She was born and raised here on Oahu, who's been dancing for 30 plus years since she was like four years old. But she was kind of, she was taught to also not only learn hula as her foundation, but the other Polynesian dances like Tahitian and whatnot. But when she actually worked for Disney World, she noticed some things that wasn't really culturally accurate. So she's, t- she's told me that it was a good experience for her, but trying to push back and making sure there's an accurate representation of Hawaiian culture and not this hypersexualization of indigenous women. I also spoke with Kalani Kana'ana. He's a chief brand officer at the Hawaii Tourism Authority, and he said there's always room for improvement, but he stressed that Hawaiian culture has always been there, although it hasn't been in the forefront of contemporary luau but he spoke about the evolution of Hawaiian culture in Waikiki. The hypersexualization of Hawaiian women, the tiki kitsch culture, that was certainly a part of it. And I think what you need to do is sort of understand it in its context and in its time. And then also appreciating the evolution over time, how leaders and all of us in the Hawaiian Renaissance really gave birth to an awareness and in that emerging understanding of culture and what it means, how it's evolved over time. And so certainly, yes, looking back, some of that would never fly today for sure, but it comes from a place of curiosity and learning that has really helped us to develop and evolve what it is and how we portray it. Yeah, because I mean, you do have, you have the uh, traditional hula and then you have hapa, haole hula as well, you know, but that's part of the history and the evolution. Yeah, and going back to Carl Vito Baker, he said that, you know, more cultural practitioners should have the conversation and maybe have a seat at the table of how to make these all Hawaiian luau. And it's not just the Queen's luau. I know the Polynesian Cultural Center have also uh, made their all Hawaiian luau as well. Um, But we're seeing more of this push for all Hawaiian shows with the um, Native Hawaiian narrative. Yeah, and I know that there there's some discussion about a luau possibly happening at the Shell as well. So we'll see how that uh, evolves. But thank you so much, Cassie. Thank you for having me. We've been talking uh, with HVR's Cassie Ordonio about efforts uh, by One Halau to hold an authentic Hawaiian luau. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Former President Donald Trump has made some claims. You're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. What do they mean? People, including sort of elite thinkers, continue to downplay the threat that he poses and suggest that despite promising wild and dangerous things, he doesn't really mean it, when time and time again, he's proven that he does. What Trump's authoritarianism might mean for democracy. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Support for HPR comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com.
And now it's time for the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Earlier we asked you for the name of the Honolulu Theatre for Youth's first production that would happen back in 1955. HTY is one of the oldest and most respected children's theaters in the country. It was founded by Nancy Corbett, who at the time uh, was a creative drama director for Honolulu's Department of Parks and Recreation. In the nearly 70 years that it has been open, it has served over 5 million people through school and family performances and education programs. Over 300 new plays for young audiences have been commissioned by HTY, and it all started where the production of the classic children's fairy tale, Jack and the Beanstalk, which is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. The production was directed by Catherine uh, Kayser, who served as HTY's artistic director for the first five years. And fun fact, HBR classical music host Louise Lanzalotti served as managing director of HTY in the early 2000s. And we had no winners today, but that's our quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. theater production geared for a special needs audience is currently underway. Forest Flutters, a bird day party, is a collaboration between the State Foundation on Culture and the Arts and the Honolulu Theater for Youth. It's designed for children who experience the world differently because of learning or physical disorders. Here's a clip from the show. The 30-minute interactive performance Engaging Different Senses opened last Saturday at Capitol Modern in an exhibit space affectionately called a pod. The State Foundation's Danica Rosengren spoke with the conversation's Lillian Song about making art accessible for all. By being really intentional about creating performance experiences and art experiences for people who experience the world differently than neurotypical physically abled people, we're able to create like a more inclusive space yeah, so I work for Capital Modern and the State Foundation on Culture and the Arts. Capital Modern is the Hawaii State Art Museum. It is the People's Museum. Taxpayers pay for the museum to happen, so it's free for everyone and open to the public. I always think of it about how can we make it more inclusive so that people don't only feel welcomed, but that they belong in that space. And I think that's the same for theater. It's how can we create spaces of belonging. Spaces of belonging, yeah. And the more comfortable your audience is, the more they can engage with you and what's going on mm-hmm. on stage or in that space that you set aside for things to unfold. Yes, exactly. And on top of that, I think it's 12.8% of DOE students have been identified or are a part of the special education program. Mm-hmm. And so it's also to make sure that we're reaching those students in a way that is best for them. Force Flutters really meets people where they're at, but it is an immersive multi-sensory experience where, you know, if someone doesn't have the capacity or doesn't want to sit for a certain amount of time facing front to see a show or feels the inclination to touch elements of a museum, this is a space where they can actually do that, right? So the art surrounds them. We have puppets that come out that interact with them. They get to pet the puppets. They feed the puppets. They hug the puppets. They play with the puppets and engage with the space alongside certain props that they themselves are invited to touch and manipulate. Mm. So kind of explore the entire space through this 30-minute performance. Okay. And this is the second season that you've had this performance going on last year was under the blue a water environment this time it's forest flutters what is that synopsis what's the storyline of the forest that you're sharing yeah yeah so for this version at the pod in capital modern it kind of goes through a forest noticing and exploring the different birds so they start by meeting an eevee who is taking a little bird bath in a waterfall, and then they themselves get a bird bath. And then they hear an Akiapola owl, who then goes on a hunt to find different bugs. And 
the akiapula owl is kind of like a, a woodpecker. Mm. And so it it taps on the wood and then we invite everyone to to tap on their chairs to kind of have a, a little drumming experience. And then one of our artists, Karen Kiefer, created these incredible little sensory snails, kahuli, that they then meet and get to play and explore the space with these snails. They get to hug an eel, which is a Hawaiian hawk, and seeing the gentle side of the hawks, maybe. <laughs> and, and then uh, they see some of the birds that are no longer with us in the stars. So we have a UV light experience where they get to look at the stars and the o'o and the nukupu'us that are in the stars. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a day in the life of birds through these two forest guides' eyes. And then at the very end, an akohekohe baby is born. And so we all have happy bird day for the akohekohe and and they flutter back home. Oh, wow. Well, I really enjoy how you're purposely creating these spaces that invite the audience, you know, to interact. This is just different for me. It's like I, I come from the traditional model of you go to a gallery, you go to a museum, you sit down, you <laughs> stay in your space. But what you're telling me is that they can lie down, they can dance, they can you know interact with actors in this in this space that normally would be a gallery. And as you do this, as this is your second season doing this, why is this important to create performances like Forest Flutters? I have noticed, you know, this is all from just like viewing and hearing teacher feedback that this is a space where we can really say, hey, if you want to shake and then jump, we're going to respond and we're going to shake and jump too. And you still will have access to a hug from the EO because we're going to come to you. It's not, okay, well, you're not going to get a hug if you don't sit down, right? We're going to say, if you're lying down over there far away from where everyone else is sitting, we're still going to come and offer you it. And I think that a lot of teachers' responses have been just a lot of thanks and in some ways relief of like, this is exactly what my kids need. This is exactly the space that feels good for them because it allows them to have a little bit of freedom in movement and activity in, you know, in a museum where it's usually like you can only go at a certain pace or you aren't supposed to touch things. So it's it's kind of allowing a space for them to be themselves. Mm. Earlier this week, we had a school and there was a young person who was nonverbal. And halfway through the show, we just heard some singing. And because I, I didn't know prior to the show that he was nonverbal, and all of the teachers kind of turned and they're like, is he singing right now? Oh my gosh. And so there are these moments that happen, and I always tell the actors, we don't know baseline. We never know baseline. All we do is we can meet the young people where they're at, and then the teachers can tell us if something has changed. And so that was a really exciting moment for some of the newer actors to see. I don't think he was making words with his singing, but he was singing. And it was clearly a big moment for the teachers to all witness and experience. Because so, he was engaging. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In a way that it in sounds like way. he doesn't usually. Mm. So, And there have been a number of teachers who've also said, you know, I'm expecting a child to come in and immediately leave, right? And they're one of the most engaged students the whole time. And so there are a lot of moments and feedback around that. And there's one student last year who was awesome. He came to the school show. And during the show, we had little cutout fish that everyone did shadow puppetry with. And so he came two weeks later with his mom and his sister. And his mom said, oh, he wanted to bring this fish. I don't know. He, he made it right before the show this morning, and he wanted to bring it. I was like, oh, that's great. Yeah, he remembered that there's going to be a shadow. And sure enough, as soon as the lights came out, he didn't need one of our shadow puppetry fishes because he had his own, and he was ready to play and allow his fish to swim in this space. So it's like little moments like that where it's like, oh, they really – they remember, they're engaged. If you didn't have this performance base for them to interact, they may never have well, did what they did. Yeah, and I think what these shows can do is open a window. Open a window into potential new ways of communicating, of interacting, of, of connecting. I always think of it as like, how can we foster and strengthen human connection in mm -hmm. like in all of the work that I do, right? And so this one also is Aina connection, right? How can we better support the Aina and our land and the forests and celebrate the birds? That is, I think, what is seen in this in the feedback and the responses from the teachers and the parents mm -hmm. of the students is, you know, there's there's a window that's open that's like, oh, this is something I wasn't expecting that is is an exciting 
possible future opportunity. Right, right. So much going on. March is right around the corner. <laughs> so the DOE shows already sold out, but there are public performances that we have the opportunity to go to. Share the details with yeah, our listeners. So the performances are March 3rd and March 9th. I think the March 3rd shows are currently sold out. I think they sold out today, but check the website at htyweb.org. <laughs> and March 9th, I'm sure, is still available, and it's open for anyone we're really trying to focus on neurodivergent young people, young people with developmental differences and disabilities. But, you know, we've had people of all ages come if this feels like the right sensory, immersive experience for them. Right. You had also explained to me how when it's not a performance space, it's a gallery space. Yeah. So it's going to be up for how long? So that's open until the end of June. And that is open 10 to 4 daily. And even during our events from six to nine, and often I'm in the pod, but I'll be there with some of the puppets and showing some of the secrets of the space during the events. And then it will transform into a traveling preschool performance that will tour throughout the archipelago and then land at the Tenney Theater at Honolulu Theater for Youth. So it's kind of this multi-step extended process <laughs> that we really we start really intimate and focused on a very small audience and then it slowly grows and grows. Wow. So final thoughts about how the community's mindset can shift to become more inclusive? Yeah. So I really do think that a lot of the work that I do, I think of especially in the events is advocacy work, right? And activism. Activism around radical inclusion, around um yeah, just spaces for for all. And I really, a, a lot of the event portions during the first and third Fridays at the museum, I talk a little bit about this work and I share kind of the why behind why, why it's sensory friendly, why there's a bunch of different textures, why there's surprises on the ceiling, why there's also different props and kind of how the show is structured. And I, I think that if we as individuals and as a community shift our mindset around inclusion, then our society can change to be more inclusive. That was arts education specialist Danica Rosengren talking with HPR's Lillian Song. Forest Flutters, a bird day party, celebrates Hawaii's native forest birds. Public performances on March 9th at Capital Modern are free, but spaces are limited to 10 children and their caregivers. The forest space will also be open to explore every first and third Friday of the month through June. Look for links on the conversation page of hawaiipublicradio.org after the show. That is it for us today. Tomorrow, we hear about the state's first construction management program that's about to get underway at Hawaii Pacific University. You can find the conversation segments on our website or anywhere you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. <laughs>